The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike by R. Austin Freeman. Thorndike is the original fictional forensic detective from the early 1900s, using science to aid the art of detection to bring criminals to justice. This time presenting The Message from the Deep Sea, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. So, Jervis, what do you think of the London Hospital? Quite remarkable, Thorndike. It was an excellent education to see the variety of patients. Dr. Thorndike, wait a moment. Hart, Hart, what's the matter? I've just been sent for to a case of murder. Would you mind looking at it for me, sir? It's my first case, and I feel rather nervous. Of course we'll come, Hart. It's been a while since you were in my classes, Hart. Have you started a practice here? No, sir. I'm an assistant to Dr. Davidson, the police surgeon, but he's out just now. She's in there. What was that, ma'am? I-, I couldn't understand you. She's in there, the back room. Thank you, Mrs... Mrs. Goldstein. I own this house. Uh, just wait out here, Mrs. Goldstein, and the doctors and I will examine the room. Anything interesting along the flight of stairs? I saw you examining them carefully. I uh, don't quite know yet. Uh, let's look at the body first. Uh, now, Dr. Hart, uh, tell me what you see. It looks like a common room. The the blinds are still down. Everything looks trim and orderly enough. Uh, very good. Now, what else? There's someone in the bed. That's where the body must be. I can see a blood stain on the pillow. Uh, Jervis, pull up the shades, please, so that Dr. Hart can examine the body better. Certainly. Good heavens, the poor girl! Let's see what sort of wound all this blood came from. Her neck is almost cut in half. Uh, Savagely done, yes, but almost merciful. She must have died without even waking up. The brute! The infernal, cowardly brute! He shall hang! We're here to find who did this, Hart. Now, now get out your notebook and start noting your own personal observations. What is it you found on a pillow, Thorndike? This. Uh, what do you make of it, Jervis? Silver sand? I don't understand how sand could have gotten spread all over her pillow. I don't know either. Let me collect this sample into a seed envelope and we can consider the explanation later. Good heavens, sir! What is it, Dr. Hart? Look at this. The dead girl has dark hair. These in her hand are long and red. It was done by a woman. Uh, So it would appear. Uh, Jervis, my magnifying glass, please. What are you doing, sir? Testing the rigidity of the hand. It's quite stiff, in fact. Here's your glass, Thorndike. Thank you, Jervis. Yes. (laughs) There. Now, 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 see here, Hart. Uh, There's more here than at first glance. Oh, Dr. Davidson, you're here, sir. Friends of yours, Dr. Hart? Of a sort. I was a lecturer for several of Dr. Hart's medical classes a few years ago. I am Dr. John Thorndike. We've only touched the covers of the bed to see the death wound and, and placed the thermometer on the body to determine the time of death. Thank you, Hart. You may leave now. Well, Dr. Thorndike, your legal permission to be associated with this case needs to come from the police inspector over here. My assistant was not authorized to call in outsiders. Excuse me. That thermometer should be ready to take a reading, Inspector Harris. How long ago was the time of death, Dr. Thorndike? About ten hours, I should say. Hmm. That fixes it at two o'clock this morning. What's that, Dr. Davidson? Take a look at this hair in her hand. My word. A woman, eh? She must have been a tough customer. A woman murderer would account for that box by the head of the bed, with the asset stood on top of it. She had to stand over them to reach over. But she couldn't have been very dull. She must have been mighty strong, though. Why, she has nearly cut the poor wench's head off. 
Hey, there's sand on the pillow. How can that have got there? Sand? Are you sure? Look at this, then. This case is nearly solved. Detective Bates, when did you arrive? Only a moment ago. I locked myself in to have a look around while you were talking. Detective Bates, why do you say it's nearly solved? It's a simple matter, after all. There's a bowl of sand soap on the washstand, and the basin is full of blood-stained water. Yes, go on, Detective. You see, she must have washed the blood off of her hands and knife, and then used the sand soap. Then, while she was drying her hands, she stood over the head of the bed and let the sand fall on the pillow. Admirably done, Detective. And what do you suppose was the sequence of events? Well, I'll take it that the deceased read herself to sleep. There's a book by the table by the bed, and a, and a candlestick burned down to the wick. I imagine the woman came in quietly, lit the gaslight, put the box and asset at the bedhead, stood on them, and cut the victim's throat. Are you sure? Let, let me finish, please, Dr. Davidson. Oh. The deceased must have waked up and clutched the murderer's hair, though there doesn't seem to be much of a struggle. No doubt she died almost at once. The murderess washed her hands, cleaned the knife, tidied the bed up a bit, and went away. That's what you think happened? Uh, I think so, Inspector. But how she got in and out, and where she went, those are things we've got to find out. Perhaps we had better have the landlady in and make a few inquiries. Dr. Thorndyke? <clears throat> oh, just a moment. I'd like to take a look at this. <clears throat> uh, just checking something with the lock on the door. Uh, Mrs. Goldstein, the landlady, is waiting outside on the landing. After you. Now, Mrs. Goldstein, I want you to tell us about the girl. What was her name? Minna Adler, a nice German girl who came from Bremen a few years ago. She was a waitress and a good, quiet, hard-working girl. When did you discover what happened? About 11 o'clock in this morning. I thought she had gone to work as usual, but my husband noticed her blind was still down. So I went up and knocked, and when I got no answer, I opened the door and went in, and I saw... <laughs> then her door was unlocked. Did she usually lock it? I, I think so. The key was always inside. And the street door? Was that secure when you came down this morning? It, it, it was shut. We don't bolt it because some of the lodgers come home rather late. And now, tell us, had she any enemies? Was there anyone who had a grudge against her? Why should anyone have a grudge against her? No, she had no quarrel with anyone. Not even with Miriam. Miriam? Who's she? That, that was nothing. Um, that, that wasn't a quarrel. Just a little unpleasantness, I suppose? Just a little foolishness about a young man. That was all. Miriam was a little jealous, but it was nothing. No, no, of course. We all know that young women are apt to, you know, running around. Miriam? Red hair. Short, powerful build. I need to get that hair. Is my daughter Miriam? Inspector, I have it. Miriam, those are the doctors and the police. Shay isn't dead. Is she, is she not not really dead? Thorndyke, don't you think? Oh, where'd he disappear to? Ah, oh, downstairs. Uh, excuse me a moment. Thorndyke. What are you wrapping up in that cigarette paper? I'll, I'll show you later, Jervis.
That was an interesting morning to start our day with. Did you see what that detective did before we left? He took that hair from the dead woman's hand. I think he had better have left it there. Of course he should. But that's the way in which well-meaning policemen destroy valuable evidence. Do you intend to take any active part in this case? That depends on the circumstances. I have collected some evidence, but what it's worth, I don't know yet. I shall do anything that seems necessary to assist the authorities. That is a matter of common citizenship. Thorndike? Come in, Jervis. I finished with my dinner, and I'm most curious to see what you've discovered with the information you gathered this morning. Yes, well, I've been busy. Uh, useful stuff, this Fortifix cement. How is that? Uh, I'm covering these three pieces of molding wax with the cement. Makes an excellent cast. Uh, by the way, if you want to know what was on that pillow, just take a peep through the microscope over there. It's a rather pretty specimen. Why? These are tiny seashells. Uh, indeed they are, and it's a message to us from the deep sea, Jervis, from the floor of the eastern Mediterranean. Can you read the message? I believe I can. Perhaps that is the message I've been waiting for. Ah, here we are. What message have you got, Thorndike? It's from Mrs. Goldstein. Oh, Anna brought the post with me. Here's a blue official envelope that came addressed to you. This answers your earlier question, I think, Jervis. Yes, the coroner's subpoena. Dr. Davidson has arranged to make the autopsy tomorrow at 4 p.m. What do you think, Thorndike? Well, we must go, I suppose, though Davidson will probably resent it. I've got all my things together for the post-mortem. Are you ready, Thorndike? Almost. I'm waiting for Poulton to bring me something. Do you have any material evidence to offer the coroner? Well, right now, it's disjointed and inconclusive. If I could join it up into a coherent presentation, then it will be very important. Oh, there's Poulton with your package. Ah, thank you. But we must be off now, or we shall keep Dr. Davidson waiting. We've got a short ride across the city, Thorndike. Would you explain to me why we sat around waiting for a deck of cards? Oh, these aren't playing cards. Yesterday I had Poulton photograph a page of that Old Testament of mine, the Russian and Yiddish one. Russian and Yiddish? Anyways, you can see I had Poulton make two copies. Why is the lettering white and the background black? Shouldn't it be the other way around? <laughs> Not for what I need it for. What about the large black border around the edges? It makes an excellent background to dust for fingerprints. Aha! Uh -huh. No more questions, Jervis. I have a stop to make before the postmortem, but I'm sure we'll be close to being on time. I thought you said it would be a quick stop, Thorndike. We're nearly late for the postmortem. I couldn't leave without the information I needed. We must return at quarter of six, but we're here at the mortuary on time. Ah, there you are, Dr. Davidson. Sorry I couldn't wait, but a postmortem is a mere farce in a case like this. You've seen all that there was to see. However, there is the body. Dr. Hart hasn't closed it up yet. Now I must be off. Have a good afternoon. I must apologize for Dr. Davidson, sir. Oh, you needn't worry about it, Hart. You didn't supply him with manners. I won't be long. Just have to verify one or two points. Might I ask what we are doing now? We've been wandering around this section of town for nearly two hours. 
Is it something to do with that lady you spoke with this morning on the way to the mortuary? Indeed it is, Jervis. Now, where did I put those photographs? Ah, here we are. Careful! Watch where you're stepping. You're blocking the doorway. Excuse me. I live here. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to be rude, but by any chance, can you understand Yiddish? Why do you ask? I've just had these two photographs of lettering given to me. Uh, one is Greek, I think, and one is Yiddish, but I have forgotten which is which. Yeah, me see them. Uh, here you are. This one is Yiddish, and the other one is Russian, not Greek. Oh, thank you so much. I'm greatly obliged to you for your kind... Splendid. He held the pictures exactly the way I hoped. We shall get beautiful fingerprints off of these. That man has a very memorable face. Marked from smallpox, I'm sure. Who was he? I've never seen him before. That wasn't a chance encounter, was it? And I know you did not forget which photograph was which. <laughs> I shall explain it all tomorrow morning at the inquest. And by the way, I picked up a morsel of evidence that Davidson had overlooked. He'll be annoyed, but he is simply too uncivil for me to communicate with. Dr. Thorndike, Dr. Jervis, you're late. Uh, terribly sorry, Art. Have we missed much? Very little. Mrs. Goldstein just finished her testimony, and we're waiting for the next witness to come forward. What do you think of the attendance today? Uh, the jury appears to be mainly honest working men. I personally know Miriam Goldstein's defense lawyer. There's a fair amount of reporters and a good show of the general public. Yes, yeah, the case is well represented. Thorndike, that man you talked with yesterday about the photographs, he's here. Haha, <laughs> that's good. Be quiet in the room, please. Miss Silva, please state your acquaintance with the deceased. We worked together for a long time at the Empire Restaurant in Fenchurch Street, and we both lived in the same house. She was my most intimate friend. Had she, as far as you know, any enemies, any persons who bore a grudge against her and were like to do her an injury? Yes. Miriam Goldstein was her enemy. She hated her. And how do you know that Miriam Goldstein hated the deceased? She made no secret of it. They had a violent quarrel about Moses Cohen. He and Miriam were sweethearts before Minna came to lodge here three months ago. Moses took a fancy to Minna, and she encouraged it, even though Paul Petrovsky was her own sweetheart. Finally, Moses broke off with Miriam, and he and Minna became engaged. Miriam was furious and complained to Minna, but Minna only laughed and told her she could have Paul instead. And what did Miriam say to that? She was furious. Moses is smart and good-looking, but Paul isn't much to look at. Besides, Miriam doesn't like him. He had been rude to her, so she made her father turn him out of the house. It was just after that that the trouble came. The trouble? I mean about Moses. Miriam is a very passionate girl, and she was furiously jealous of Minna, so when Paul annoyed her by taunting her about Moses Cohen and Minna, she lost her temper and said dreadful things about both of them. As, for instance? She said she would kill them both, and that she would like to cut Minna's throat. When was this? The day before the murder. Who heard her say these things beside you? Another lodger named Edith Bryant and Paul Petrovsky. We were all standing in the hall at the time. But I thought you said Petrovsky had been turned away from the house. Well, he had been a week before, but he said he left a box in his room and he was only there to fetch it. Miriam had taken his room for her bedroom and turned her old one into a workroom. She said he should not go into her room to fetch his box. And did he? 
I think so. Miriam and Edith and I went out, leaving him in the hall. When we came back, the box was gone. You spoke of Miriam's workroom. What work did she do? She cut stencils for a firm of decorators. Have you ever seen this knife before? Yes. It belongs to Miriam Goldstein. It's a stencil knife she uses for work. Thank you, Miss Silver. Would Paul Petrovsky come forward? That's the man you showed the photographs to yesterday. Do you, Paul Petrovsky, swear to tell the truth? Before we move on to the next police officer that saw the crime scene, I have one more question for you, Detective Bates. Yes, sir. Have you any physical proof to the scenario you have previously depicted in regards to the actual murder? Yes. A tress of woman's red hair was grasped in the left hand of the deceased. <gasps> Silence, please. Detective Bates, continue. I have two packets containing hair. One marked A is the hair found in the hand of the deceased. Packet B contains a hair belonging to Miriam Goldstein. Where did you obtain my client's hair? It came from the bag of combing that hung on the wall in the bedroom belonging to Miss Goldstein. I object to this. There is no evidence the hair from the bag came from my client at all. Very well, Mr. Horowitz. I will make a note of your objection, but I shall allow the sergeant to continue his evidence. Thank you. I've examined and compared the two samples of hair, and it is of my personal opinion that they are from the head of the same person. The only other observation... We will now begin the medical evidence with that from the divisional surgeon, Dr. Davidson. He examined the deceased soon after the discovery of the murder and has since examined the body. Ah, the deceased was laying in her bed. She had been dead about 10 hours and rigidity was complete in the limbs but not in the trunk. Cause of death was a deep wound extending across the throat straight down to the spinal neck bone. Have you observations as to the type of weapon? Ah, the wound was by a single-edged knife, drawn from right to left. It was clearly homicidal, a single sweep of the knife while the deceased was laying down. Is there any other information you can give? There was no sign of struggle, and a death appears to have been instantaneous. The murderer is probably a short person, very muscular, and right-handed. And what of the evidence given by Detective Bates? The hair? Yes, I saw it in the hand of the deceased. I have compared it with that of the accused. I think that it is her hair. The hair was probably grasped convulsively at the moment of death. Next, what are you shown a knife belonging to the accused? Yes, a stencil knife. Could the wound have been inflicted with that knife? It's a bit small to produce so deep a wound. Still, it is possible. Next, we will have Dr. Hart. The next witness, gentlemen, is Dr. John Thorndike. Almost by accident, he was the first on the scene of the crime. Uh, for the benefit of the jury, I am a lecturer on medical jurisprudence at St. Margaret's Hospital. In lay terms, I have the knowledge and experience of both a lawyer and a medical doctor. Will you examine the knife and tell us if the wound on the deceased might have been inflicted with it? Perhaps it might, but I'm quite sure it was not. Can you give us your reasons for that definite opinion? It would save time if I gave you the facts in a connected order. Very well. Proceed, please, Dr. Thorndike. I shall not waste time by reiterating the facts already stated. I have nothing to add to either Detective Bates's or Dr. Davison's accounts. Death was apparently instantaneous, and I should say that the deceased never awakened from her sleep. But the deceased held a lock of hair in her hand. That was not from the murderer. It was placed in the hand of the corpse. 
The fact that the murderer brought it along shows that the crime was premeditated and that it was committed by someone who had access to the house and was familiar with the residence. How do you know that, Dr. Thorndyke? The hair seemed out of place. It lay loosely on the hand and not clasped like it should have been if it had been grasped at the time of death. Secondly, the hair had not been pulled out at all. How can you tell? When a hair sheds naturally, the root end shows only a small bulb. However, when a hair is forcibly pulled out, the root is dragged out and can be plainly seen as a small mass at the end of the hair. If Miss Goldstein will pull out a hair and pass it to me, I will show you the great difference between hair which is pulled out and hair which is shed. Ah! Here, take it. Uh, thank you. Now, please examine it with my magnifying glass. My, this is remarkable and most conclusive. I assumed the hair had been taken from Miss Goldstein's hairbrush, but the detective's evidence makes it clear they came from the bag of combings he mentioned. You have disposed of the hair clue, Dr. Thorndyke, but have you found anything more on the knife or murder's identity? Inside the hallway of the house was a shelf holding two china candlesticks, each with its own candle. A short candle end was laying on the tray. On the floor, I could see a spot of wax and the faint marks of muddy feet made by galoshes. I followed both up the stairs. What does this have to do with the murder? I'm merely showing the series of events. Very well. well. There were no descending footmarks, but I did find a piece of wax that got stepped on by the galoshes. The lock on the street door had been recently oiled, as well as the bedroom door, which had been unlocked from the outside with a bent wire. How could you tell that? There's a scratch mark on the key. Inside the room, I noticed two other things. The dead woman's pillow was slightly sprinkled with sand. The other was the empty candlestick beside the bed. It had a skeleton socket formed of eight flat strips of metal. The charred wick of a burnt-out candle was in the bottom, but a little fragment of wax on the top edge showed that another candle had been stuck in and then removed. How could you know that? Anything else than that little fragment of wax would have melted. Immediately beyond seeing that, I thought of the candle end in the hall. So I went down again and examined it. Yes. I hope you're going somewhere with all of this. On that candle end, sir, I found eight distinct marks that corresponded with the eight bars on the candlestick in the bedroom. Eight markings? Indeed. This candle end had been carried by someone in their right hand, for the soft wax had taken clear impressions of a right thumb and forefinger. How did you determine which hand was used? The size and position of the finger imprints. I took three molds of the candle end in molding wax, and from those molds I have made cement casts, which clearly show both the fingerprints and the marks of the candlestick. And what do you conclude from all these facts? I believe that at about a quarter of two on the morning of the crime, a man entered the house by means of a latchkey. How do you establish the time, Dr. Thorndyke? It rained that morning from half past one to a quarter of two, this being the only rain in the past fortnight, and the fact that the murder was committed about two o'clock. Very well. The man lit a wax match in the hall and another halfway up the stairs. He found the bedroom door locked and turned the key from the outside with a bent wire. He entered, lit the candle, placed the box and hassock by the bed, murdered his victim, washed his hands and knife, took the candle in from the socket, and went downstairs. There he blew out the candle and dropped it into the tray. That sounds plausible enough. Now the last clue we have is the sand found on the pillow. I took a little of it and examined it under the microscope, and it turned out to be deep sea sand from the eastern Mediterranean. How do you reach that conclusion, 
Sand is sand, isn't it not? Oh, certainly not. And this wasn't just sand. It was mixed with minute shells called Forminifera. One of the tiny shells happened to belong to a species which is only found in the Mediterranean. This is very remarkable. How on earth could deep sea sand have got onto this woman's pillow? Sand of this kind is contained in considerable quantities in Turkish sponges, and the warehouse workers are covered in sand. If a worker had committed the crime, then we might have been able to... Then the sand could have fallen from his clothing. Exactly. To establish the identity of the person, I sent a message to Mrs. Goldstein for a list of all the persons acquainted with the deceased, with their addresses and occupations. In that list was a man who worked as a packer in a wholesale sponge warehouse. Who is this person? Tell us! I wanted to be sure that the two sets of fingerprints matched, so I prepared two mounted photographs and met the man at his door. I simply asked if he would examine the photographs for me. He did, holding each one between his thumb and index finger. Ingenious. If you would look at my casts and compare them with the other evidence. <gasps> Petrovsky! I will kill you, Dr. Thorndike! Oh, no, you don't! You got a knife! Oh, I don't Inspector, uh, please hand that knife to the corner. Will you please examine it, sir, and tell me if there is a notch in the end near the point? Yes, there is! Have you seen this knife before, Doctor? Uh, no, I haven't. When I examined the body, I found embedded in the bone of the spine a small particle of steel. Uh, here it is in this little envelope. I believe it will match the notch in the knife Paul Petrovsky just pulled on Detective Bates. Let me see it. By heaven, Dr. Thorndike, it fits exactly. Officers, arrest Paul Petrovsky for the murder of Minna Adler. I can't believe it, Dr. Thorndike. You've done it again. Nothing at all, my boy. I just had to take the time to understand the message from the deep sea. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike, written by R. Austin Freeman, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. In the cast were Dave Johnson as Dr. John Thorndike, Roy Nessel as Jervis, David Van Meer as Dr. Hart, Brad Hendricks as Inspector Harris, Stuardo Glasser as the coroner, Edward Romero as Detective Constable Bates. Claudia Cimini as Karen Silver. Joanna Bruno as Mrs. Goldstein. Other parts played by members of the cast. I'm your announcer, Jason Lind. Edited by Jay Charles. Recording engineer, Alex Westcott. Production assistant, Shariah Level. Produced by Joseph C. McGuire. Recorded at KSVR Studios. This is a Radio Theater Project presentation.